0: Well, hey everyone, Jason here again. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today we've got Mark Sayers with us from Melbourne, Australia. And if you only have a few minutes, I know sometimes these episodes, they're long. You listen to them in part. So if you only got a few minutes, please jump to the last 10 minutes and hear his word for Canada and his prayer for our nation. It was just stunning. As I've been thinking, the highlight for me so far doing this podcast has really been the interactions with you, the listeners, feedback online and through email and things like that. Because the main goal of this was always to create a conversations amongst church leaders and connect you with voices and ideas that really do serve you. So in that effort, we've been creating show notes on our website, ccln.ca, and there's helpful links on them. For example, when we had Daryl Johnson on the show, he provided a couple articles on how to pray during this time and how to preach during this time, and we've got links to those articles on the blog under his episode notes. And likewise, like Josh Kelsey, when he was on the show, he talked a lot about his dinner parties that stood out to me. So we reached out to their church, and they sent us their manuals for how they play out their dinner parties, which is essentially their small group model for all of New York City. So you can find that on the website. and on the blog. And before we jump into today's conversation, let me just tell you a little bit about our guest, Mark Sayers. He's the pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. He's the co-host of the podcast, This Cultural Moment with John Mark Comer, who we're going to have on the show in just a few weeks, and the Rebuilders podcast, which he hosts with the team from his church. He's the author of many helpful books, including Facing Leviathan, Disappearing Church, and Reappearing Church. And Mark's ability to stitch together like moves and culture and history to help us make sense of our time is such a gift to the church around the world. And while his meta-analysis is so strong in this episode you're about to hear, what stood out to me the most was his desperation for the power of God to move in our time. So if you're not driving or on a bike, uh, I think you should grab a pen or paper or open up a note on your computer for this one because there's a lot of gold along the way. Here we go.
1: Welcome to the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. We want to serve church leaders and their teams by sharing honest and thoughtful conversations about pastoral leadership. In this podcast, we were exploring the question, what does it mean to lead people in the way of Jesus in the midst of today's world? Let's jump into today's conversation.
0: Well, hey, Mark, really appreciate you making time to be with us today absolute pleasure great to be here in the Zoom. you room. are you are our third australian on the podcast or third australian that we've interviewed i don't know if all of them have been posted yet but you're the first australian who's living in australia ah wow so it feels like That's a good, good commonwealth connection the other two yes. are in new york city representing australia but in new york well it's good to be a an australian in their natural habitat <laughs> Well, hey, man, uh, there's so much stuff I'd love to chat about today. Uh, The backdrop, obviously, this conversation is we're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic that's worldwide. And one of the words that I've heard people use to describe this moment is disruption. I think it's a great word for this moment. And I think the first time way before COVID pandemic, I really thought about the idea of disruption as a tool by which God even works and really thought about it was, I think, I think the first time was in Portland when a group of pastors were there and you were there in Portland. That would have been maybe 18 months ago. And you talked about this idea of a renewal cycle. Um, And I just wonder if you could walk us through that idea of the renewal cycle and where disruption fits into that.
2: Mm. I mean, essentially, um, if you look at the history of men and women of God who have uh, moved into a place of being agents of renewal, revival, awakening, Um, whether it's at a really small level, perhaps that's even just personally or it's nationwide, um, you can track a process where, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, they come to the end of themselves. Uh, You know, uh, you see Dwight Moody um, had this moment in New York where, you know, he just came to the end of himself and the Holy Spirit um, sort of invaded him and he knocked on the door of a friend and went to his upstairs bedroom. Uh, Ignatius Loyola basically got hit by a cannonball and then had to recover in a cave. And out of that came this movement, the Jesuits. Um, There is this process that so many leaders go through. John Calvin was a refugee. Um, He was actually French who ended up in uh, Switzerland uh, because he was fleeing violence. And Mm. so there's this disruptive moment where, in a sense, our plans and our our idea of how it all should run is, is in a sense, rudely interrupted <laughs> by circumstance. And then God uses that and sort of transforms it, as Romans tells us, for good, into this transformative moment. Now, this runs counter to so much of our planning and our idea of a good life. We expect that we'll do the right things, plan in this way, and then we'll have this benefit. Um, but sometimes God uses these things. I don't think he necessarily causes all of them, but he uses them to transform us. Once we've been disrupted, it then brings us to this place of humility. And Mm. when you're humble, you can be used by God. Your agendas are put down, and our agendas are human and frail and faulty. And then we start running on God's agenda. And when we start running on Mm. God's agenda, it's almost like, if you can imagine a pebble that's thrown into a pond, where it starts with an initial wave that then comes out this ring, uh, and it goes out from inside of us in inner life, maybe just into our closest intimate relationships, then further in maybe into our neighborhood, our church, our city and beyond. And I think when revival happens, it's when multiple of those pebbles have been dropped. And then just there's these bouncing off uh, uh, in the waves, in the water and something huge begins. So that is mm-hmm. all begun when there's a moment where there's disruption. We stop looking at our plans and look at his plans.
0: Yeah. I remember when I'm um, church planning right now, And then a lot of pastors listening, they had all their Easter plans laid out, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, in one, you know, a lot of people have written their talks on Thursday or whatever it was. This is when the news kind of came down. And then Sunday, you're completely rethinking and you're four weeks or five weeks out from Easter. And um, I remember I thought to myself, as terrifying as this is, this is going to be a moment where I can align my heart and draw near to God. And just I want to receive it as a gift. Um, So I hear you saying, there's this opportunity, but what I've seen in myself for the last four or five weeks is a whole new type of busyness and distraction invaded my life. And I just wonder if there's a possibility that there is something that God wanted to do in the hearts of leaders in this time, uh, but we could actually find ourselves deking it, moving out of the way by going after a new sort of model or a new sort of dependency on self. I just wonder if you've had any reflections on that in this time and what you've been experiencing, even as you receive this moment as a disruption that God could use for good? Mm.
2: I, I had a, I had a sense that our world was going to be disrupted um, for some time. Um, you know, I had a real period of study where I was studying post-Christianity. Um, being in Melbourne, um, which is quite a post-Christian city, and, you know, visiting places like Vancouver and New York and Portland and London, um, I was fascinated by post-Christianity. But then I felt the Lord really pushed me towards what's happening bigger on the globe. Um, that's because I saw globalization in my own city and realized not everyone is post-Christian, that more it's actually, there's a post-Christian minority who tend to be the elites who run our media and shape our opinion, but on the street, that's not always true. And so I began to study what was happening in the world. And I began to get the real sense that there was going to be disruption of our post-Christian society and there was going to be disruption of the West that was already in play. Um, Ulrich Beck, who was a German sociologist who went in a different direction to what so many of his peers did. His peers were saying at the end of the 80s, as communism fell and the world was connecting both through travel and the internet, that the world's just going to move to this safe post-Christian progressive sort of reality. And he was like, no, he had a, he had a book called Risk Culture, that the more mm-hmm. modern we get, the more we connect ourselves to risk. There'll be more environmental challenges, more terrorism, more political fragmentation, um, and, and you know, I felt that this was going to upend us eventually. And I felt that God was pushing me to the direction to study the world more because I can't get settled and go, well, the next century, the next 10 years, the next five years, the post-Christian thing, let's work out how to beat this, have the smartest talk, set our churches up in the best way. So I just began to feel that, hang on, there was this disruption coming. And, um, you know, I saw early on being in a very mainland Chinese area, and I know Vancouver has a lot of mainland Chinese um, people have come in and bought property and that shaped the culture. And early on, I could see their response to um, COVID-19. It was just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Like, so Box Hill, which is just near here, it just went quiet. It was normally busy, packed with restaurants. It just went quiet. And you almost saw this thing where you had people who were walking through uh, who weren't Chinese, were acting totally different. So I was like, something's happening. Um, I was in Malaysia early on and saw how they were reacting. So I could see this thing coming. So in a sense, I felt prepared going in. Um, mm-hmm. I began to mm-hmm. talk to Daniel here, who does a lot of our tech, and say, we need to prepare that we could go online. Um, I heard from Singaporean and Mongolian and Korean church leaders um, who were talking about, hey, we had to go completely online. So that was in my head. So I felt the Lord went ahead and prepared me. The other thing, my friend, uh, he lived in Beijing um, during SARS-1. This is SARS-2. And um, he said that there was six weeks of chaos. And then just boring drudgery in <laughs> quarantine. Mm. So I had that game plan. I knew that it was going to be some running around and total repositioning. Um, we're like a factory that sold cars, and then because of a war effort, we now have to sell tanks. Um, and so I knew that it was going to be crazy for six weeks. Um, but mm. I had in my head that there is two. There was the get ready point. There was going to all hands on deck point, and then there's going to be a readjust point. Um, but I think one of the um, real nuances that people, um, I'd encourage people to think through is how much this has changed. So, partially, mm-hmm. where we're living in this post Christian, you know, and I call it high performance uh, culture, my friend um, Christoph, who's, who's um, German but lives in Australia, he introduced me to the German thinker Björn Schulhahn who talks about a high performance society where everyone's running around like a headless chicken, trying to prove their worth, their identity to everyone. Kids are doing too many activities. They're playing sport. They're playing ballet. You know, they're doing ballet. They're learning musical the instrument. Everyone's run ragged. So part of the framing for that era was how do we form people with spiritual practices that help them live in this high performance world? So mm-hmm. there's a sense where there's the busyness of the pre COVID world, um, But now there's a business which is less optional.
1: Hmm. It's more
2: forced on us. I think of all the mothers in my state of Victoria here who yesterday, and dads, who yesterday were trying to homeschool their kids and um, also do their jobs. And there's a business now which actually is not because we're trying to prove our worth. It's actually because it's been forced on us. So even Hmm. for pastors, there's an element of that. So I would say, how do we reposition out of the busyness, but not so much, this is not the high performance society anymore. This is a new reality that we actually have to grasp with. There's a mm-hmm. lot in
0: there. I'll stop there. Um, I heard you describe this idea of there being an opportunity, like, you use the analogy of hibernation, like there's something that could happen in this incubated space and coming out the other side and now it's spring and there's new life. And Can you just unpack that? that Picture a little bit more and, and really what does that mean for us as church leaders in this time? Mm.
2: Yeah, there's a number of things. Like, so in that crazy busy period of like the adjustment for about the first five or six weeks, I it was COVID 19 world. It looked at the news, I, I would look at the news because I like the news as a bit of a distraction, um, but all it was one story, COVID 19 everywhere. Um, there's no sport on. <laughs> So, I just, I'm just going to watch something else. And I, and I pulled up um, one of our online streaming things we have in Australia. And there's a movie about Brexit that I wanted to see. It was like with Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm going to distract myself with the you know, pre-COVID-19 world of Brexit. And um, what was really interesting is in the movie, it was like a um, sort of a political campaign. And they're like, the way they were talking about it, like what's the public thinking out there? And, um, you know, I began to realize that in some ways this feels like more like a political campaign in the sense that there's this day when we return, which is like voting day. We don't know how people, like I, you and I do not know how many people are going to turn up on the first Sunday properly back. Is it going to be half? Is it going to be a third? Is it the exact same number? Is it five times as many people? Right? So I thought, okay, so here's this period, which will be, we don't know how long it is, but there will mm-hmm. be. An end. So I began to think, how do we come back stronger? Okay, so that became my campaign slogan, Come Back Stronger. So I began to think about, okay, so what is the purpose of this time? My plans have been disrupted. All of our plans have been disrupted. What is the purposes of this time? Now, where were we struggling in the past? In the pre-COVID-19 period, my read is we were struggling in that there were lots of churches who could run good programs. And churches, Red could run a program and a church with you know good biblical teaching, which taught about the culture and worship, and good graphics, and this whole thing. Um, where will we and other churches struggle the most with? We were struggling the most with changing actual individual lives. Mm. Dave Kinnaman's research tells us that in the millennial generation, which is probably a lot of your church and mine, that a small percentage—I um, think in Canada it's like you know eleven or. In Australia, it's about 10%. It's around 11 to 9% of the millennials in our church are actually living biblical lives, right? Mm-hmm. So their personal lives are not being transformed by our ministries. The second thing is my experience, and I don't have research for this, but if you've got then people whose houses, whether they live in a share house by themselves or in a family, those places, if we're honest, have actually been places often of high anxiety, dysfunction, brokenness, uh, Are they reflecting the kingdom of God? I would say a minority have been. And so, um, what is so interesting is the third element I would add to that is there is a bunch of fantastic leaders coming up who are younger, (laughs) and speaking to a lot of them, I have such a heart for them. But many of them are struggling with primary issues around identity, Mm -hmm. building platform, insecurity and their emotions running their lives, not the presence and voice of Jesus. Mm. Okay. COVID-19 hits. We can't gather people in groups anymore. We can't do all the big cultural wide things out and that we used to be able to do what is left the circle of the self, the next circle of the household, And the most challenging thing is I've actually lost control. Mm. I cannot, as a leader, and as many of the leaders listening, we cannot influence the change that we used to influence. So God's gone. It's almost like God, again, I'm not saying God has caused this, but it's almost like God has gone. There's a pause button. It's like, yeah, you guys are doing great services. You know? There's plenty of people who can go into a post-Christian city and plant a great, great church. But are the people in those churches really being transformed? If we mm. were flies on the wall in lounge rooms, and dining rooms and bedrooms, would we see the kingdom of God breaking out? If we could have a little voice into what the inner, inner dialogue of these leaders are. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like God's gone, okay, put away the services, the big programs, all this stuff. And now all that we can do is see God work in the individual lives, the households of people. Now we still have the internet, we can still do stuff like this. But I actually believe that in this moment of hibernation, it's a pausing to so certain mm-hmm. parts of these cultural and communal spheres that we have. We can't work on them. Why? To actually strengthen the resiliency of us as individuals, the people in our church as individuals, our households, and thirdly, us as leaders who mm-hmm. many young leaders were tracking in an actual dangerous direction and we didn't realize.
0: love for you just to spend a little bit more time talking about that dangerous direction because it hit close it hits close to home for me you know i i that's not like an out there problem that's an in here problem is um sincere passion sincere desire to reach people growing in my walk with god but just the reality of having to look inside and seeing yeah insecurities character not developing at the same pace as maybe gifting and um so i just want to park there a little bit, because I think for a lot of people listening, that's a reality. And I think that there, I think that I, I think that I felt really early on. one of my mentors who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago named Daryl Johnson, mm. he spoke about this as a moment, you know, for, for church leaders to, to, to really draw near to God and have themselves mm. refined and receive revelation. He talked about like John on Patmos mm. receiving revelation. He even like, I think, I don't know if he said this on the podcast, this was off air, but he's like, I don't think that John could have received that had he not been in that space. And so I found myself saying, yes, like God do that in me in this time. But I think when you are reckoning with the real self, it doesn't just accidentally happen. So I'd just love for you to speak more into your insight into that. And, and really, what does that look like then as a leader to position yourself in this time to receive that?
2: I, as a young leader in my 20s and early 30s, found myself in a really unique position, which I think other young leaders find themselves in, which is rarely spoken, like no one's named what I realized was happening to me. What was happening is that when you're in a post-Christian environment, and particularly when you're in a place like Canada or Australia, which people are afraid and leaders are fearing, denominational leaders, older pastors, even just the grandma up the back of your church cheering you on, that you become the great hope. And when there's few leaders coming through, and you have some gift in this, some intelligence, some communication skills, some warmth, whatever it may be, is you get in this place where you're encouraged. <laughs> now, it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant because we all need encouragement. Encouragement is such an incredible fuel for humans and for leaders. Um, leadership is lonely. It's difficult. Leaders make hard decisions by themselves. When you're being encouraged, you eat it up. I realized that there was actually a danger in the encouragement as well. Because people were so hungry for someone to break through that they feared that their denomination, their churches would go under. It's like a team who's like a sports team who's like really struggling. And then there's like some young guy coming up and all the fans pile onto them, their hopes and expectations. Um, And that can mess with a young player and it can mess Mm -hmm. with a young pastor. Because what it does is you can start to believe that it's what you're doing or who you are naturally gifted. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. counts. I had the most incredible transformative moment when I was 30. Um, so I, I was emerging in the Australian scene, speaking around Australia. I could speak with intelligence. I could reference weird sociology books. Um, I could talk about the future of the church. And I was a dangerous weapon. And what I mean by that is, I had a lot of opinion, and not a lot of responsibility. I had the ability to communicate, but I hadn't fully matured. I had even harder people backing me, and pumping me up because they wanted to see the Australian Church flourish in the next season. And a lot of that was good-hearted, but I realised that there was character things. And look, it wasn't. I'm not. I was blind because I'm looking for money, sex, power. And, mm-hmm. and I said, okay, i got my eyes and I think I'm doing okay with it. No, no. Insecurity. Yeah. Growing up in a world where feelings are scripture. And if you then can do this Christian thing where you're talking about the inner world. I had insecurities. I had a mental health challenge. I had a Christian where I could then talk about that in a particular way. And I could craft a message which spoke to people, which really resonated. But in a sense, I was only could lead them to where I was. Mm -hmm. So maybe I was that much further ahead of them, but I could only just bridge that little gap. So when I was 30, um, I burnt out and I got sick. I was in bed for seven months and Mm -hmm. I was pretty much out of ministry for a year. It was utterly, utterly horrible. (laughs) I had to sort of give away my ministry for a year. And in that year, God profoundly transformed me. And I learned that it's not about who I am. It's about who he is. I can only know who I am through who he is. It's not about what I do. It's about what he's doing in me. Mm. And it's not the measuring point is not what my other peers are doing it's actually the measuring point is what he wants to do. And it was literally detox. It was, I was a junkie and I went to rehab full cold turkey. And, you know, I'm not going to say I came out of that year, like completely, you know, none of this stuff is a problem. It's been an ongoing thing. Um, But I believe that what God is going to do through this pandemic, I, I saw, you know, I've seen stuff with my kids. Like my, my daughter came to the supermarket in that panic buying week and we saw empty shelves and talking to, we know the supermarket manager down there who's ripping with a box cutter things and there's panic and there was security. We had someone stabbed at a, a supermarket. It was mad, not in Melbourne that day. And my daughter saw that. That will build resilience more than any program can build. That will build mm. resilience in her. So this is actually a moment, I believe, for millennial leaders coming up. Which will be the making of them. If, underline if, if they accept the gift of the season and step into it with openness. My um, sister-in-law who works with me, Terry, um, she, she's Cambodian. Um, she was born in a refugee camp on the Thai border. And it was really, really interesting. She said to her mum, "How you?" Copy? Her mum's in Sydney. And she said, yeah, how are you coping? What are you doing? And she goes, this, this, is, this is what I've learned to do. Now, she, she carried her kids. They walked from their house. When the, when the Khmer Rouge came, they, wa- they left the house. They had to flee. They walked through war zones and minefields to get to the Thai border to the refugee camp. And she said basically to Terry, I'm just going to do what I did then. What you did is you just walked in the footsteps of the person in front of you. Mm. So you knew not to walk through a minefield. So you didn't think ahead. You didn't plan. You couldn't game it out. You couldn't dominate at escaping the Camarouge. It was a hugely humbling moment. And all you could do is walk in the footsteps of the person in front of you. And she just said to Terry, this woman in Western Sydney, who's a Cambodian refugee, best advice, COVID-19. I'm just going to walk in Jesus' footsteps Mm. one step ahead at a time. and." That is a profoundly humbling approach for leaders who face the temptation at the moment to dominate and gain platform and prestige from doing coronavirus the best. That's not the lesson of the moment. The lesson of the moment is I'm shaping you, young leader. And I think, I think Daryl's 100% right. <laughs> that, those, those, that cave moment, David in the cave, uh, John on Patmos, Paul in jail. I think they're the three examples he gave. But again, to you can look at these through history. They came at a moment of actual hedging in to expand, and and Daryl says in his book on Revelations that what is revealed in the moment of crisis to to John is the cosmic Christ. Christ ascended at the right hand of the Father, who's in control of the universe. That when you feel out of control, that's mm. actually when. Christ in control is revealed to you. There's going to be some leaders, not all, some leaders who at this moment discover that it's actually in him that we have life. Hmm. I'm I'm preaching now.
1: Come on.
0: (laughs) Come on. (laughs) I've heard you one time talk about this idea of humble confidence as maybe a characteristic of, of the kind of leader that can can lead in, in the kingdom and in the world that we live in. Can you speak a little bit to that?
2: Yeah. If, if you look at our responses, you, you tend to find people going to two, two extremes. One is absolute arrogance and pride. The other is insecurity, chronic insecurity, both come from an obsession in the self. The, the person who, um, uh, is super arrogant, thinks it's all about them. The person who is um, super insecure thinks it's still about them. This is the person, like, there's a car accident over there. Did I cause it? No, no, you're not that important. (laughs) Um, That actually there, you know, Keller calls itself forgetfulness. There is when our identity is in Christ, when we realize that the moment that we're living now in just after Easter in the Christian calendar is the moment where we're, Jesus is resurrected. We die and resurrect, but we don't die and resurrect to have a more expanded, better version of our lives. We die and resurrected to live his life in God. Now, when you step into that, you realize that it's actually not about you. Uh, It's not that you're a project. Um, It's not that this is about your career path. It's not that you'll do this so people will see that, whether it's the building the giant program or doing the incredible social justice thing that people will look at you and see how virtuous you are. So there's this element that when you realize that it actually doesn't matter. It's more about what he's doing. You can take the accolades, but you can also take the criticism. And so there's mm. this space which actually comes from self forgetfulness, self-forgetfulness where it's not about you. And that comes too, that maybe someone better than you will come along and take over from you who will get the accolades. Maybe, um, you know, I, the thing I often say, are you happy if you've been working on a project that God has been using, that if no one... So basically, think about your dream, that you love the kingdom of God to do. Start that ministry, start that project, plant that church. Would you be happy for that to have been resoundingly successful and no one knew that you did it? Wow. When you step into that, that's the ultimate like acid test of whether Mm -hmm. you actually are moving into humble confidence where it doesn't matter what people think of you there's a great i so just give a great there's a great story where um one of the rabbis of france i think it was um was asked to contribute in a criminal case as a as a as a witness and um the uh the, the lawyer says to him is it true rabbi so and so that you're considered one of the finest jewish legal minds in the whole of europe and the judge says, hang on, aren't you meant to be a man of God? That's not a very humble thing to agree to. And the rabbi says, well, what am I meant to do? I'm under oath. And <laughs> there's a sense of like, he's just saying that because it's actually, actually true. I don't take anything in that. It's actually a true fact, but I don't build my identity in it. That's humble confidence. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. One of the things that I've appreciated getting to see you minister in person, like I've listened to this cultural moment and, you know, I'm enjoying the Rebuilders podcast. But I remember even just in London, you were speaking at an Alpha conference and I think, I think it was here at the end where essentially you're like, you know, all this talking, what we really need is the power of the spirit. And it was just kind of like, we just, it was a panel discussion talking about the future of the church and shifting cultures. And everyone on the panel said such amazing, thoughtful, insightful things that are even practical and helpful. But there's like this, and I've seen this in your ministry that I've just appreciated in person where it's like. You, to me, are one of the best people that help me understand the moment we're in and how we can respond. But even the best critique, insights, the time don't get us to a place where we are now in control. And I've just seen in your ministry this kind of moment, number of times where you've just said, you've just invited the, the response of the people in the room to say, we've just got to call on God. And I just wonder if you could speak to that idea of dependency and even just the resurgence of prayer that could happen in this time.
2: Mm. One of my favorite stories is um, of Thomas Aquinas, um, pro- probably the greatest Christian theologian. He wrote probably the greatest Christian theological systematic theology. Um, and near the end of his life, he had this moment of connection with God, which we don't know heaps about, um, in a church service. And then someone asked him afterwards, and he said something like, my entire book is simply straw compared to the experience I just had. And I think I've mm. always believed that story. You know, look, I can chuck out some, you know, it's really weird. It's like, I, I didn't do great at school. Um, I do not have a university degree. Um, I'm just interested in the world. It's my hobby. Um, when I was younger, I loved soccer and I still love soccer, but I would memorize all these players. I could tell you all this. I just, I'm just like it. There's some people who can do something good. I could just link these things in my head and I can do that with stuff. So I'll relax by listening to this, some podcast about, you know, Russian information warfare. And then just cause that's just how my brain is. I can link it to something that happened in, I don't know, David's, you know, campaign against Absalom's rebellion or something. I just made that up that, you know, I could go somewhere with that. But that's that. That's nice. It's good. It's helpful. But I live in the reality that whatever I think up, I then come back to a bunch of very real people. Mm -hmm. Um, Last night, I came here to the office at 10 p.m. when it was cold, drove through the deserted streets. Um, And I came here because someone had left the temporary toilets open because we got some builders removing asbestos and I came to shut it up and to make sure no one broke in and took their live stream equipment because I'm in Australia and I think this is a gift too in Canada there's an element where we still do stuff like that <laughs> <And> <laughs> you can't take yourself too seriously when you're coming to lock up the toilets at 10 o'clock at night so I just don't take myself serious like I got some okay things to say but at the end of the day all of it doesn't matter one jot compared to what god can do in a second i've talked Hmm. to people endlessly and endlessly i can give you all the information i can tell people five different versions of how we got to this post-christian moment i can tell you all this different stuff and i can recite random things because my brain's just a bit weird that i can remember that stuff but at the end of the day i've realized i've seen people who have absolutely messed up the intellectual side of it or given a brilliant intellectual side of it and then the holy spirit changes them yeah so my abilities are so pathetic and nothing compared to what the holy spirit can do they're just simply the the fork god is the meal and mm. you know I, I just you know I, and, I, and i have lots of you know guys oh how do i think like you whatever like don't don't be like me cultural moment was just one particular thing that god did a particular time for people but at the end of the day, I got to the point of this where I realized that none of this matters. I'm sick of smarts for smarts' sake. More smarts, mm. more articles, more podcasts, more information is not going to do it. The only thing that's ever done it, the only thing that will do it is the power of God coming when people are humble and get to the end of themselves. Do so I recognize that as a
0: ministry reality. Hmm. That's so good. I just, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a bit more for us. So I had this really
2: interesting realization for me being in Australia, far away from everything. And as, as God led me into writing books, I didn't want to write books again. You know, I didn't think I could write a book. I wasn't good at school. Um, you know, you start to meet people and so on. And, And what's one of the really interesting thing is there's some wonderful people who you meet who are famous Christians. There's others who are not that impressive. And I began to discover that so weird thing where sometimes the most impressive person, and I mean, impressive as in kingdom of God, holy presence of God on those people. I want to be around. are sometimes the girl who drives you to the airport, Hmm. the guy who's cleaning up afterwards, the person who's actually seventh down in the hierarchy in the teeth. And a big prayer then of mine is that in the kingdom of God, in the upside down kingdom, it's not positional leadership. Hmm. It's not platform. It's actually presence. People who walk with the presence of God, who have holiness and humbleness, are the ones who God can use. So I, I had this really interesting prayer. I felt God about a year, 18 months ago, um, I said, God, show me who your humble ones who you're going to use in the next season. I believe COVID 19 is a wilderness interruption, transitional, liminal point between a previous era where. A lot of it was coming way too much about platform. And I felt God saying to me for 18 months, I'm going to raise humble. Who are the humble? I want to raise the humble. And I believe in this time, what he's actually done, is he's he's deconstructed. Imagine if we had platforms. Imagine that in a metaphorical sense that social media, celebrity culture means we can build our own platforms, which is pretty unusual in history. But what God has done is now he's he's taken apart those platforms and we have a bunch of lumber in front of us. And he's Hmm. saying... Take away the platform, but use that lumber to build a secret place, a hidden place in your backyard, in the woods somewhere to meet with me. And the ones who do that will be the ones who use in the next season. Mm-hmm. So I, I see it. I see it around the world. Humble people who like God has been drawing for the last 18, 12 months, two years, three years, who've been winning the battles with God in the private spaces so that in after this emerges or maybe even during this emerges, he'll elevate in the public spaces. Um, there is a hunger for prayer, for intimacy, you know, that I've not seen in my entire ministry life. Mm. Um, there's a hunger for him. Ultimately, it's him. You know, if, if, as Daryl Johnson says, you know, Christ is revealed in crisis, that, that authoritative Christ who will lead in the crisis, those who are then dwelling with that authoritative cosmic mm. Christ is the term he uses. Um, so something's happening. It's a, it's, I actually think it's at the beginning, but it's, it's absolutely, yeah, it's the furnace. This, this COVID-19 is a furnace of transformation.
0: Mm. We've been talking quite a bit about what God is doing in this time in the hearts of leaders and in the church. Um, I want to just pivot a little bit and maybe look at an opportunity for those who are not connected to the church as we think about, maybe if this, if I could put it this way, the missional moment we're in or the evangelistic opportunity of this moment. And I think some of the language you used is that there's like power structures and idols that are being subverted and, um, and tampered with in this moment in the culture. I just wonder what, what opportunity do we have as missionaries to the world mm-hmm. in the midst of COVID-19? I think there's two things. Number one is, I'm just hearing, just heard more here
2: yesterday. Um, people who are switching on to live streams, crazy people who, like that guy down the road who I've tried to get to come to church He's never come. You know, I'm hearing these stories from multiple friends, like resist, resist, resist. And then like, oh, yeah, I turned on your live stream for Easter Sunday. Um, you know, I heard of a church where the cleaners have just started switching onto the live stream. I'm hearing so many stories like that. It's crazy. Um, uh, Talking to some of our medical people in hospitals, having conversations, people they have worked with for years now, all of a sudden having conversations. Why is this happening? Because one of my theories around post-Christianity, I began to come quite strongly to at the end of this study of studying post-Christianity was that post-Christianity was only plausible when you had a bunch of factors in place. So for example, you could take a bunch of your most Post-Christian millennials from Vancouver, and you place them in the middle of Idlib in Syria in a civil war. I promise you, their post-Christianity is going to come under incredible pressure.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so post-Christianity can only be sustained when it's like, and this is why I think it's harder in places like you know Australia and Canada because we do have good governments mm-hmm. <laughs> and. You know, and I, and I don't even mean that like whoever's a prime minister. I'm talking like the system runs pretty darn well and COVID-19 is showing that. So we're not worried about healthcare. We're worried that, you know, the government will work this out. We can be protected. We assume a kind of life. That means we don't have to think about God because a bunch of other factors in place. This is shaking. that. Hmm. The distractions are gone out. There's no sport. There's no entertainment. There's no movies. When's the next movie that you're waiting for coming out? It might not happen. Um, you are faced with yourself. And we're faced now in a situation, N.T. Wright said something interesting, said, you know, p- plagues are just a part of history. We just thought we'd beat them. Actually, the post-Christian arrogance thought, you know, the, the political system, globalization thought had beaten it. Yeah, Andrew mm-hmm. Sullivan said the other day, um, the one, basically I'm paraphrasing, but he said, the one gift of a pandemic is that it shows you humility. So mm-hmm. people are being made humble. I just would like to say something on the flip side of this, from my own experience, so there's this tremendous evangelistic moment on one side where not everyone yeah. but some are and also mm-hmm. this is early I've been listening to a lot of economists podcasts lately and I'm hearing like editors of like major you know London and New York financial papers like basically going oh my goodness this is insanity like what is happening I mean you know crude or whatever yesterday oil they're basically paying people to take it like it's mad like, we didn't almost like is.
0: waves. Like, this is the social wave. Like, we're feeling the social effects. Some people are, are experiencing the health effects or the loss of even loved ones. So that's very yes. real. But there's other waves of pain and loss of totally. control, whether it's economic and there'll be other social implications as time goes on. And there's geopolitical China. Like, there's just so many
2: things. Um, Saudi Russian oil war. And, and like, there was a New York Times thing saying this could go for four years. Like everyone's just still like, oh know, yeah, I'll be over in six weeks. Like this is not going to be over in six weeks. Um, so the flip side of it is then that here's this massive evangelistic opportunity. Then over here, I want to talk about pastor and I just make fun of myself for a second. Um, I, with all my sort of sociological reading and cultural critique and trying to, you know, being a prophet to the church at times. So at the end of last year, I was in a meeting with a bunch of pastors and someone brought up live streaming and I waited and, held my breath, and then gave my measured response over the problems with disembodiedment and time and all this stuff, which, you know, you can find a lot of this in my books. So that was with a bunch of Aussie pastors. Then a couple of months, oh, a month or something later, or it could have been a week later, I can't remember when, I met with a group who worked with Iranians. Mm-hmm. And they came in and they met with us. And they talked about the incredible thing that's happening in the Persian-speaking church, not just in Iran, but um, in Afghanistan syria turkey um, the diaspora that's in places like canada australia scandinavia germany and what i realized talking to them is their model is you can't meet in a church in a lot of these places so they're presenting worship online sermons in farsi they're training people um and they're recording stuff it could be in germany or great britain or turkey and sending it out across the islamic world this is not just happening in Farsi, this is happening in Arabic as well, hmm. across the Middle East. This is happening in China as churches are, were using technologies like Zoom to gather, right? So I'm sitting there with these um, people who are reaching out to Persian-speaking people, and they're afe- effectively talking about live stream. And I sat there, and I had one of those humbling moments where I have my internal dialogue. <laughs> and I'm like, Mark, where's your critique now? Hmm. And I thought, well, hang on, it's a different scenario. So when we kick off COVID-19 and we talk about live streaming, something which I had spoken about against, I thought of the Iranians. Hmm. And I thought of the fact that the church is hugely growing in, you know, across the Middle East in households and then with internet streaming and things. And I was like, well, we can't meet now. Mark, you have to be humble enough as a pastor to meet this moment. (laughs) And, you know, I I then was like, I'm humble enough to even put aside my own well-formed critique to embrace what God could do in this moment. Mm -hmm. I realized that the the, the game had changed. It's not now either. we're just going to create cultural Christians. There are people, our church is like doubled or tripled in size. Like in six weeks. It's crazy. What does that all mean now? I've got people from overseas who want to join my church. I don't, I don't understand what this means. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit's doing something at this time and I want to be on the front floor. Look, I'll still have my critique as I'm going and there's things like we're doing, like we still want to do come Holy Spirit in the midst of our services. Like, right. If that's awkward and weird, you know, i was talking to Pete Hughes, my friend at KXC, and we're saying, yeah, we want to keep doing that, even if it's awkward yeah. and weird. and It's some guy in his, in his bedroom doing that.
0: We tried it for the first time this Sunday. Wait, like prayer ministry. We just said, we got to give it a go on zoom. And, um, what was really interesting. Somebody said during the time of music with worship and even that I'm kind of like, what does that even mean? Like how long do we do it? And you're not hearing other voices. And somebody, somebody said, as a feedback, they said, I felt really connected to the body during worship, the other people. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, that's not zoom. That's the spirit. I'm just thinking. I think I get, I guess what I, I resonate with what you're saying, because there's like a, there's a humiliation, even of like my version of spirit dependency was worship and prayer ministry in the room. And yes. I'm like, that's why we can't do online. And you know what yes. I mean? Or whatever. And like, I think God's really challenging us to be dependent on him in a different way that breaks the categories. And the other thing about what you're saying was so fascinating is we've been looking to people with buildings and finance and infrastructure to teach us how to do church for the last two decades. And so much, you know, there's a critique, but so much great how to dis- care for people, disciple people, great things have come down and very rarely. And I want to say this sensitively, have I met young church planters saying, I'm looking to Syria for advice yes, or Syrian yes. churches for advice about how to plant a church. But right now I'm literally trying to think how the fall will look. And I'm thinking, just hearing you speak, I've got to call some people in the Middle East yes. to figure out how to multiply and actually reach neighbors. I think a lot of the conversation right now is how to maintain the people we've had um, and people that would find their way to our livestream, But how do you actually multipl- do a discipleship multiplying movement when you can't gather at the same scale? And who do we look to for that?
2: I mean, honestly, like the, I was at the Alpha Collective, Asia Alpha Collective in Kuala Lumpur. And... The first country shut down, and I didn't speak to this guy, but I heard secondhand when I was there, and I was like, oh, get ready, um, that the churches were shut down in Ulaanbaatar, right? I was, I'm was i just going to state this for people if they're not getting this. I was prepared for what the future would look like from a guy from Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. Not New York, not London, not San Francisco, not Sydney. Ullen Bator. And this this is a moment of humility for the Western church. I sat with Miles Torman from HTBB and interviewed him earlier on in this year. And it was just made so clear to me the shift that is happening in the world. When the movie Her was made and they wanted to do a future Los Angeles, they went to Shanghai to shoot what the future looked like. When Westworld wanted to shoot what a future Los Angeles looked like, they went to Singapore. Mm. There is a moment of humbling here where we need to look to other places. Because if we really believe in a global world, um, this could be a moment of humbling for the West um, and a rethinking of of how we do our things in a moment of humility.
0: Mm. Mark, I'm wondering if you could help me make sense of something. I've so appreciated the dialogue from you and others around the realities of post-Christian culture. I mean, that was a big theme on this cultural moment, which I loved what you and John Mark did. But I feel like what our experience here in Canada is like can feel sometimes a bit different Mm. to what's often characterized as a post-Christian culture.
1: Mm.
0: And maybe what I mean is I feel like there are maybe more currents at play at any given moment. And I just would love your thoughts on that. Could you unpack that a bit for us?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's I think there's two two layers to this. Um, the first layer is that I would say there is a profound difference between a United States post Christianity mm. and what is happening in Canada and Australia, and and you could even say there's different post Christianity. What's happening in a uh, Sweden is its own version. What's happening in Germany um, and I would say that probably Australia and Canada have a lot of similarities, Commonwealth history. Okay. Yeah. So what's really interesting I've learned about the United States is there's a religiosity to everything that happens in America. The democratic national convention looks like it looks like a to me as an Australian, it looks more religious than some Australian church services. Um, there is a religiosity and an enthusiasm that just infuses the whole of life in the United States. Our countries are different. Um, it's actually stepped back. Our nationalism is different. Um, it's more subtle. And what's really, really interesting about Canadian life in particular is, you know, Pierre Trudeau and continued the project with his son Justin, this project of almost having a post-national uh, culture, which is much more multicultural than necessarily melting pot, which you might see in America, where in America, like, hey, I'm an Arab, you know, even the terms like, African-American, Arabic-American, Asian-American are really interesting. I find it interesting that when I go to the United States, I will talk to people and say, I'm Asian-American. When Australian. They'll go, oh, I'm Cambodian-Australian. I'm Thai-Australian. I'm Cantonese-Australian. Mm. And so this this is really interesting. So in a sense, there is this different playout of multiculturalism um, that you would have in Canada. And so what's interesting is you tend to have an elites who are running um, the country who have a high value in multiculturalism. Um, you know, that would be Justin Trudeau's current government. Um, that would be my local state government is like this. Um, and, but what's so fascinating is I began to realize that in a sense, you're undermining your own project of post-Christian progressivism, the more multicultural you go. Mm. So the more diversity you bring into the system, the more problems that then creates for your sort of post-Christian vision because a people from the two thirds world are very religious and philip jenkins also tells us that what's really weird is that there are so many people who become christians when they move from a buddhist country a muslim country to to the West. so again i brought up the persians before one of the things that has happened with with persian people is migration there mm. are there are iranians coming to faith in malaysia there's iranians coming to faith in germany and norway um so what's happening is you have this bizarre multiple things going on. Now there's mm. a term I'm going to introduce here. Um, there's diversity, which most of us got our heads around. But if you look at the study of ethnology, what's happening now is they're talking about super diversity. So what they're saying is that um, you can say, oh, diversity, and America, in a sense, has this language of you know like um, you know, African Americans, Asian Americans, Latino Americans. But they're these huge cumbersome blocks which don't actually reflect the reality on the ground where what do Cubans think? What do Cubans in that city think? What do young Cubans versus older Cubans or Cubans who are actually are this political persuasion or a Catholic or evangelical Cubans think? There's this tremendous amount of diversity. So what I began to realize about Melbourne is I thought, oh, it's this giant post-Christian city because, in a sense, that's who controls the newspaper. When I read yeah. it, who controls that's who's on Twitter. Um, but even Twitter. So one day I did this thing and I I thought I'm going to put Twitter on not what Twitter is recommending to me at the top stories in Melbourne, but actually what are the, you can do a a setting where what are the people who are physically closest to me? What are they talking about? I turned Mm -hmm. it on. This is what happened. They were mostly people speaking Bahasa Indonesian and they were talking about the English Premier League. Mm. and that is not the model of what i think melbourne is and i then started to do this thing where i would go on a, a tram and i would look at people and i would go hang on this is so much more diverse i'd meet people it could be someone who melbourne has one of the biggest jewish um, holocaust survivor populations in the southern hemisphere mm. melbourne is the world's biggest greek city outside of greece um you know melbourne has a large sri lankan community um, and the same would be for Toronto and the same would be for, you know, Montreal is, is, you know, multicultural, mm-hmm. um, that the same would be for Vancouver. So actually part of, I think what we need to do is even the language of a post-Christian city isn't true necessarily that actually our cities are increasingly religious. It's just that post-Christians control, you know, whoever, they you know, say history is written by the victors and maybe sociological descriptors are written by elites.
0: Mm. I'm going to attempt to translate it. Tell me if I'm understanding, right. Um, The post-Christian vision is a world untethered from the bondage of religion, whether it's Christian or whatever it might be. And so we talk a lot in the church about how do we reach a post-Christian culture? I think it's important, you know, because how do we reach those who were hurt by the church, whose parents left the church, but that, that, that dream, that vision, um, which is very real, isn't necessarily the story for every single person we meet on the street. And so if you're doing, you're running an alpha course in Vancouver or Calgary or Toronto or Melbourne, you're going to be inviting some post-Christians who've got baggage about the church, or they might not have personal baggage, but they've been surrounded. Their parents left the church. We've also got people who are very very comfortable with religious terms. In fact, they prefer it. That creates safety, and they're threatened even by, um, by that that uncoupling that seems like the progressive dream. Am I am I capturing that right? Yes.
2: Yes. So so to put it like put it this way, okay. So take a Canadian evangelical girl, right, um, who is at a college in Canada. Let's say she's in in Toronto, okay. She would feel continually under pressure that she's super conservative, right? And that, you know, she's on the wrong side of history. Take the exact same girl. Don't change anything about her and put her in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia at a university. She would be the most liberal person. She would just be seen as sexually libertine because she holds hands with her boyfriends in a room with no one there. So actually what people need to realize is it's not actually what you do. It's actually where you're positioned against other cultures. So there are a bunch of people who are going to be on the left um, of, of you. And, but then there's other people. So a lot of, uh, you know, I, I was at a moment, I was it a Persian festival or some of our Persian Christian friends um, near here. And it was so fascinating, so I'm walking with Persians and one of my Persian friends sees his friends, oh, she's a Christian, he goes up to her, she's not wearing a veil, they give each other a hug. And I look right and there's other Persians in veils looking at them, glaring at them. Now, hmm. what do these evangelical Christians seem like? They seem like wild, uh, <laughs> you know, progressives compared to these other people. So actually the situation is far more complex than we realize. And we need to start mm. thinking with a much more, and again, it's super diverse means, like diversity, a lot of the language around diversity has been really helpful, but actually it's super diverse. And that means it's really complex and everything is happening in your city.
0: Mm. And so Mark, how do we best engage, yes. like as followers of Jesus, how do we engage with those around us in the midst of a culture like this? I mean,
2: we have to trust that God is drawing people to him. Mm. And there are people right now who are having weird religious experiences. Martin Robinson wrote this great book um, a number of years ago, called I think it's called The Mind of the Unbeliever. And he talked to an American who went to do a church plant in Sheffield, um, mining, you know, very industrial north, you know, very, very unchristian, you know, secular. And he, he tried to plant, I think he struggled. So he just started doing this sociological long-term studies with these, you know, very, the most, the most unchurched people were males, sort of like 40 to 60 who were, you know, working class and so on. And interesting, like took time. And after a while, all of them admitted to him that they pray. Mm -hmm. They don't tell their wives, they don't tell anyone. And they all pray in the toilet. (laughs) And, um, And he just realized that God is drawing people. Mm. to him. And I think almost what we've done is we've almost become intimidated because we're believing the faulty story. We we became like hostages who start to, you know, get Stockholm syndrome um, when actually our cities are hotbeds of the Holy Spirit bringing this incredible, wonderful diversity of people from all over the world. What an incredible opportunity. And then Mm. as churches, you get the ability to gather those people there was a study that came out of the UK that said some of the most multicultural places in the United Kingdom are actually churches. Wow. So we get to live this kingdom of God reality, which is more like the street, the reality of what the street looks like than what the ideology of our cities say. Like, there's mm-hmm. a huge, huge invitation in the midst of that to join. Oh, the Holy Spirit's I, what love that.
0: I love that. I love that. When you were visiting us in Vancouver, you shared... Um, a a real word like of encouragement um, for the Canadian church, for Canadian church leaders. And then again, um, there are some young Canadians at the conference you're at in London and you pray with them and just want to just give a moment before we finish, just for you to sort of tell us a little bit about what God's been putting in your heart as you reflect on the Canadian church.
2: Yeah. I mean, when I do this thing around praying to show me the humble places to rise up, I felt like God changed my perspective. Um, if we're really, really honest, how the Christian world, the English speaking Christian world has worked, is that if you're a successful Canadian, you'll probably end up in the United States. If you're a successful Australian, you might end up in the UK or the United States. Um, and Canadians will go to the UK as well. Um, and it was almost like this, this really interesting dynamic at play. And you know, in many ways, it's been the American century. And to be a Canadian, in a sense, you live in the shadow of that. It's really interesting. There's so many people hugging the border. Um, you know, that's going to have an effect. Um, and this, and don't I don't want people to hear this as a slam on America. There's wonderful, many wonderful, great things that came comes out of America. You know, absolutely. Um, and um, but what what is God doing in Canada? Now, Canada didn't come. You know, like I haven't always. You know. God speaks to me about countries, I feel at times. And I just felt God begin to just nudge me about Canada. And I wondered if there's a moment for Canada coming in the world. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
2: there is hard power and soft power internationally. Hard power is um, you know, military, soft power is influence. South Korea has international soft power through K-pop. Japan has international soft power, despite having an army, which is defensive around the world through its culture and fashion and popular you know, anime, um, Canada actually has some soft power. And I began to, to feel this sense that there was a moment of invitation for Canada. Where the world is going, and I think where the post-COVID world is going, is what we're seeing currently is we're seeing countries do well who are small to medium-sized, who are well-run, and who actually have good health care, governance works at the end of the day, um, can form a cohesive sort of national vision for people to rally behind at moments of crisis. And countries like mine and yours are actually doing well in this new reality. We are about to see, I believe, and Parag who I read a lot at the moment, who's an expert on globalization, says you're going to see a global talent drain away from places like London and Paris and New York, towards places like Auckland and Vancouver and Melbourne. And you know, these places, these smaller cities who can actually protect people. Um, There could be a moment coming. And in a sense, the Canadian church finds itself in a really interesting country, which has, in many ways, the multiculturalism and diversity that the future will hold as the world gets more multicultural and diverse. That's been part of Canada's vision for a long time, that sort of post-national vision. Canada also has a really interesting quirk, which is regionalism. And uh, it has different provinces and it has some of the tensions of how do you ha- hold that all together. The Canadian Railway sort of being this, this thing in the past which would hold these disparate parts of the country together. But it's interesting, again, to Parakena. He says that what's happening is COVID-19 is creating a regionalized world. He actually said that glo- regionalization is the new globalization. Mm. Um, I'm in a weird position at the moment where our, our equivalent of provinces, our states, I can't enter into some of them. Tasmania beh- below me, which I could fly to in 40 minutes, I can't enter there without being, um, you know, fly south from Melbourne without quarantining for 14 days. The border of Western Australia is cut off. The border of Queensland is cut off. Australia has gone back to these regions. So fascinating. Um, and so Canada's experience of having these different regional realities gives the church this fascinating dynamic of understanding different cultures all in the one country. Um, the sort of post-Catholic quiet revolution story of Quebec is mm-hmm. a fascinating challenge which the church can learn for, which is this fascinating European sort of secularism in the midst of another country. What a fascinating advantage you guys have to see what church planting looks like in that place. You've got the sort of Pacific Northwest, Cascadia, um, Vancouver you know, in British Columbia, which has its own unique sort of culture, which is again, an incredible laboratory that God's actually doing something in, which is mm-hmm. also a hub city to the Pacific and Asia. And many people who may feel reticent, other countries around perhaps hard power of the United States, feel drawn to the soft power of Canada. Um, you've also got this East Coast reality of Toronto and Ontario. You've got this fascinating Alberta um, petro nationalism dynamic going on. But what I'm saying here, it's all happening in Canada. And what if God is using you guys as a laboratory? You've got these little experiments of different things where different plants and different ministries can begin all in one country, but still with this cohesive national reality. You've got this interesting sort of um, progressive sort of post-Christian thing, but then you've also got this really interesting right-wing resurgence. I don't know if anyone in Canada has noticed this, but how fascinating was it that in the whole sort of culture wars that have just happened, even in the United States general election 2016, you had all these people who blew up on the internet who were boosters for the Trump campaign, despite what Canada may see itself as more to the left of the United States. You had all these people, Lauren Southern and, and Stefan Molyneux and all these people who all of a sudden were speaking into that who were Canadians and, and then the whole Jordan Peterson phenomenon. So in a sense, what does Canada have? Canada has everything going on. What if Canada actually looks more like the future mm. and you guys just haven't realized that? And what if there's an opportunity, which is less about going down south of the border, but what if there's a moment where God wants to keep this, I mean, in a sense, we've gone back to our households during this time of COVID-19, but also we're going back to our countries. And I actually believe that God is going to use Canada as a kind of laboratory
1: Mm -hmm.
2: for new forms of how do we reach this emerging world. And increasingly, people will look to Canada of what you guys are going to learn in the next season as a place of inspiration, not Canadians going elsewhere to find inspiration. Um, mm-hmm. and, and lastly, I guess my last thing is there is a humility. That is an incredible gift I see in Canadian movies. There is a quietness and a listening that I appreciate so much. And I think that the posture of many Canadians to actually sit and listen is such a powerful kingdom thing for Canadian leaders and to actually model a new kind of leadership. There's a sting in the tail. The sting in the tail is the weird thing is about many countries, Australia, New Zealand, uh, in the Scandinavian countries, Canada has it too, where we also will kick back against certain kinds of leadership. Right. Now, Americans will elevate leadership will undermine leadership. Canadians, we have our own Australian way of doing it. The, there's the Yanta laws in Scandinavia that have doing it. Um, the Kiwis have their own version. Canadians have their own version. And I think that there's an element that Canada needs to if the humble confidence. Some countries are too confident. Canadians will be sometimes too humble. Now that sounds weird. I don't mean too humble, but too quiet what if at Mm. this moment god is inviting canada to not just see itself in reaction to the shadow that is cast over the border but actually to grasp that moment of humble confidence and in this moment of covid19 to go deep before you go wide but actually to step into the moment that god has for canada moving forward you know i i I strongly feel that and so as perhaps as a fellow commonwealth person who perhaps can say it because i'm not from there but have some links to uh, a shared monarch, um, is step into this moment, Canada, Mm -hmm. embrace this moment, prepare now for, I think what could come for a vital part that God wants you to play in the next story that he's going to do in the world, not just for Canada, but beyond.
0: Can you pray for us before we sign off today? Yeah, i are trying trying the prayer thing over the podcast, and I don't know. Listeners can tell us how they're experiencing it, but I just kind of feel like, even as we're reflecting earlier, you know, the way the Holy Spirit works, I maybe I put him in a box. And I just want to respond to this like I would if I was in the room with you. I'd be like, Mark, you put your hand on my shoulder and pray for me. And mm-hmm. so for all the pastors listening, whether in Canada or around the world, just would love to create a moment where you just, I just want to say yes and amen to the things you're saying and. Um, just receive that. So yeah, would you pray for Mm, us? Yeah. Father, I want to thank you for
2: everyone listening. I want to thank you particularly at this time for Canada, for the role that you have shaped for her. Father, I think of in the way in scriptures that you talk about individuals, but you also talk about nations. And Father, I want to pray that you expand Canada's horizon expand her vision, expand the church's sense of who they are. I just, I guess, want to prophetically ask them and call them to step out of the shadow, to actually step into the light. Brother, I want to pray against, um, I guess, something which is perhaps more over quietness, a fear of stepping forward. Father, at this moment, show leaders across Canada how to lead, but lead in a Christ-centered way that is also truly Canadian. Father, I know that you've been preparing a whole cohort of humble leaders for the next thing you want to do. Anyone who's listening who's felt that they've been ignored, they're in a silent, quiet place, that everything that they've been doing has been in vain. Father, at this moment, lead them. May, we just, may they just step as we said in that, just in the two footsteps in front of them at this moment, in your footsteps as you lead us, Father, I want to pray for a sense of unity over Canada, as that regionalism and what can be learned from that can sometimes be fractionalism and fragmentation. Um, yeah, I want to pray for her leaders, for the Prime Minister, for the provincial leaders. Um, I do actually just even want to thank you, Father, for um, we don't often think about the Queen, but even just her uh, messages that she sent to both our respective countries that Australia and Canada needs to turn to prayer during Mm COVID-19. We accept that invitation. And we pray, Father, that she may lead um, us as as strange constitutional monarchies into a greater understanding of you, Father. Mm -hmm. And so at this moment, may in the midst of this, as people hurt, as people suffer, as we fear about the economy, about the social impact, the medical impact. In the midst of this, turn all things to good. Give us a gift. We want to receive it, Jesus. Empower Mm -hmm. everyone who's listening. Thank you for these leaders. And we pray, Father, that across Canada, in big cities, in prairies, in small towns, do something new. Let us no longer talk of this as a post-Christian country but actually a country where the holy spirit is active and starting new things and drawing new things. We pray this in your name, Jesus.
0: Amen. Amen. Man, thank you so much Mark for your time and for everyone listening like we've been trying to make sense about how to be most authentic and in the moment with these podcasts and You know, as we end in times of prayer like that, I just hope that you feel the sense that we have, which is we're in this together and this is more than just ideas, but really, really about something that God is doing and inviting us to. So yeah, grateful for Mark and his willingness to pray with us there at the end. Hey, if you want to connect more with Mark Sayers, we've got links to his church and his podcast on our blogs. So you can find that at ccln.ca. And please, if you haven't, check out This Cultural Moment and The Rebuilder's Podcast. I think he's releasing content almost every week on The Rebuilder's Podcast, specifically about life in COVID-19. And some of our favorite moments uh, from the interview we've captured on video, and you can find that on our YouTube page as well. Hey, next week, I'm really excited. We have Father James Mallon with us. And we recorded this interview while we were with him mm at a conference in Phoenix a number of months ago. So this was before COVID pandemic. And so maybe next week for some of you, like me, I've been listening to so much content. This might be a welcome break from COVID content. It's an incredible episode. The stakes are still high in what he's talking about. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. For those that don't know, Father James Mallon is the Episcopal Vicar for parish renewal and leadership support for the Archdiocese of Halifax in Nova Scotia. And I first heard of Father James Mallon when he was the parish priest at St. Benedict's in Halifax. But now he leads up Divine Renovation, which is an incredible ministry with reach all over the world that's helping hundreds of parishes and churches move from maintenance to mission. He's at the cutting edge of church renewal in the Catholic Church, and he's passionate about bridging the divide between Catholics and Protestants. And so that's coming up next week. And you can help us out a ton by sharing this podcast with your friends and other church leaders. Toss a review on our podcast and subscribe if you haven't. And if you want to stay more up to date with the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at Church Leaders Network. And if you've got any questions or feedback, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at contact at ccln.ca. Okay, we'll see you next week.